this is typical of this case here. It shows you why it's so difficult to deal with serial killers. He came from Pennsylvania to Florida to Gainesville. After the homicides, he drove to Jacksonville and cleaned his car up and drove back to Pennsylvania and showed up to work the next morning. So people in Gainesville sitting there with, what's happening here? No local suspects. Who could we pick? That was retired Daytona Beach Police Chief Paul Crow, who, while a detective, investigated the 1980 slang of 20-year-old Mary Carol Maher. That investigation brought him to Gerald Stano, who subsequently confessed to dozens of slangs across Florida and beyond. That shocking story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. Let me take this time to apologize for the extended break between episodes. The holiday season and some long-awaited vacation time contributed to the long pause, but we appreciate everyone's patience. This week's episode is a special one. It is a profile of one of Florida's worst ever criminals, a man connected to nearly 90 murders of young women. I'm talking about none other than Gerald Stano, who 40 years ago was an employee of the very newspaper that employs me. Among my special guests for this episode is retired police chief Paul Crow, who spent six years building a case against Stano that resulted in his death sentence. You'll also hear from Kathy Kelly, who retired from the News Journal after working 50 years as a reporter and editor. She wrote a book about Stano and interviewed him a number of times while he sat on death row. Let's jump right in. You know, he he was a very confident person when the first time he met me. I mean, he just started in talking about people he knew, and he didn't have any hesitation, it seemed, about talking to a reporter. The initial interviews were set up and approved by his attorney at that time was Don Jacobson. I told Don I wanted to write a book, and he asked Dano. And he said several times in the letters, I want this to be a good book. So he intimated he was giving his full cooperation. He wanted this to be a good book. He wanted this to be a good book. By the time he was 28 years old, Gerald Stano had implicated himself in approximately 40 murders. Kathy Kelly, who you just heard from, with the help of author Diana Montaigne, wrote a book about Stano titled, I Would Find a Girl Walking one of the most comprehensive books ever written about one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Overshadowed by other infamous murderers, such as Ted Bundy, Eileen Warnos, and others, Stano was caught the way so many other serial killers were caught. His last victim got away, and she went straight to police. Stano was random with his victims. He literally would find a girl walking, or hitchhiking, or prostituting, or stranded, and he would decide in an instant to kill her. Stano's temper, particularly toward women, was extremely violent and unpredictable. 
Little things would set him off. A young woman could say something about his glasses, his clothes, his weight, the music he was playing. One of his victims laughed at the Donna Summer song he had on the radio. The next thing she knew, he'd pulled a knife on her. He used different methods to kill, strangling, stabbing, shooting, and drowning. His killing spree lasted for seven years. He averaged one victim every three months in Florida alone during a period from 1973 to 1977. It is believed that Stano killed about 15 young women along the west coast of Florida, but a total number was never tallied. There just wasn't enough cooperation among law enforcement agencies back then. By my count, he was linked to 15 or so in the Daytona area and Gainesville. He also was suspected of attacking victims in and around Orlando. He also killed others in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Paul Crow was the investigator who connected Stano to a homicide first, and then he pulled out of him several more murder confessions. According to Crow, there are 88 homicide cases linked to Gerald Stano. Of those 88, Stano was prosecuted for 33 of them. There were 12 grand juries paneled for murders committed by Stano. He received a total of eight life sentences and three death sentences. Stano remained on death row from 1983 to 1998. He was 46 years old when he was executed. His victims were mostly white. Two were black. His victims ranged in ages from 12 to 34 years old. The first news story about Stano was published by Kathy Kelly on September 3, 1981. At that time, Stano had been accused of murdering six women. There were many more accusations to follow. In that article, Stano was referred to as Volusia County's first mass murderer. Stano admitted to Circuit Judge James Foxman during a hearing that he killed those six women. He was sentenced to three consecutive life terms. He was eligible for parole, but not for another 75 years, which would have made him 104 years old. Foxman admitted in court that he wanted to sentence Stano to death. He said the defendant profited from the bargain he struck to escape the electric chair. He promised to help investigators locate the remains of all of his victims in exchange for a life sentence. Again, the world would eventually learn that the total number of murder victims far exceeded six, and Stano would eventually find his way to death row. Donna Marie Hensley was Stano's last victim. She was one of the lucky ones. She survived. On March 25, 1980, Hensley was walking down Ocean Avenue, commonly known as the Boardwalk, which runs parallel to the ocean on Daytona's beachside. The beachside 38 years ago was a seedy place. Longtime residents moved away, while runaways from up north who wanted to live on the beach for different opportunities wound up in and around Daytona and would frequent the Boardwalk. It's where the infamous Deidre Hunt wound up. 
a convicted murderer who I profiled on this podcast in October 2017. Hensley, like a lot of boardwalk dwellers back then, was on quaaludes. Getting into strangers' cars wasn't new to her. And on this particular night, she came upon a red AMC Gremlin. On the front end of that Gremlin, where a license plate would normally be, there was a sign that read, No riders except blondes, brunettes, and redheads. That sign amused her. Stano pulled up next to Hensley and then asked her whether she was working. She knew to be careful not to get into a car with an undercover cop. But she saw Stano's disco attire, and she was convinced no cop would be dressed like that. She told him she was just going for a walk. He asked her whether she wanted a ride instead. Those were the right words. Hensley got into his car. Usually, Stano's victims never got out of the car alive. But in this case, Stano drove Hensley to a motel where the two had sex. Stano gave the woman 20 bucks like he had promised, but as soon as he did, his mood changed. He went to a dark place. He told her he hated hookers. He called them the scum of the earth. He threw a tantrum and then ransacked the room. Then he put on gloves and told Hensley she was in trouble. Whether in his car or in a motel room, Stano always had access to sharp weapons. Hensley was slashed in the arms and chest and stabbed in the right thigh. Stano demanded his money back, and she gave it to him, plus an additional 30 bucks. She hoped she was in the clear, but he wound up grabbing a gallon of muriatic acid from the kitchenette and then splashed it on her. I'm not done with you yet, he told her. She escaped out of the room and screamed for help. Stano ran to his car and sped away. Hensley made it to the hotel's main office. It was 5 a.m. The clerk called an ambulance and police also showed up. Stano attacked Hensley with a can opener, a nail file, a knife with a black handle, and a pair of scissors. Hensley didn't like cops but she was all too eager to spill everything to them on this morning. Stano was tracked down with ease. Once he was in police custody, Stano started talking about some of the other crimes he had committed, including the murder of Mary Carol Maher, who he murdered two months before his attack on Hensley. Here is Paul Crow discussing with me his conversation with Hensley and then his subsequent interview with Stano. When we interviewed her, she knew who did it. She had been with him before, described the car, told us where he worked at, etc. So, on a hunch, we pulled him in for that case only. And once he got in there talking to us, then I uh, started putting two and two together, if you will. I took uh, Mary Carol Mahar's photograph. I put it with her sister, which is a twin. I took four, four other photographs. And I showed it to him, had he ever seen any of these people before? And he paused on the first one, which was the sister. And he went down, no, 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 that's her. Mary Carol. Crow had just finished going through extensive training at the FBI Academy, so he knew how to pick up on certain things. Stano's use of the past tense in describing Maher jumped out at him immediately. 
Crow had already been consumed with the case of the disappearance of Mary Carol Maher, a former mainland high school swim team star who vanished from the Holiday Inn boardwalk at 400 North Atlantic Avenue on January 27, 1980. Maher's body was stabbed several times before her body was placed on the ground near an embankment along Bellevue Avenue and covered with pine branches. The discovery of her body was a dramatic discovery, not only because it solved the case of who killed her, but it also opened the door to solving dozens of other cases, and also ended a reign of terror that people in Daytona Beach and elsewhere didn't even know was happening. To better understand Stano's sadistic behavior, one must understand how his life began and how he never had a chance to turn out to be anything less than a disturbed person. Born with the name Paul Zeininger, Stano was neglected during the first seven months of his life. Born in upstate New York to a young prostitute mother, the state removed Stano from his home, even before he became a toddler. He was so severely neglected, according to evaluators, that Stano resorted to eating his own feces for nourishment. That level of abandonment at such a critical time for a person's development ultimately warped his mind. In spite of the warning signs, baby Paul was adopted. His adopted parents named him Gerald Eugene Stano. After six months with his new parents, Stano was evaluated. He was deemed unadoptable and was about to go back to the custody of the state. But his adopted mother, a nurse, fought hard for him. She and her husband had no children. She poured everything she had into the child and was determined to raise him and make him better. Stano was never an affectionate child. The psychological damage was done. He continued eating his feces as a toddler. He was clumsy. He was slow to talk. He suffered fevers throughout his childhood. During his educational life, Stano was a bully. He picked on smaller children. Teachers told his parents something was wrong with him. Stano was a thief, too, and that remained a recurring problem. His behavior did not improve as he got older. As an adolescent, he once threw a rock from an overpass and struck a car. No one was seriously injured, but he got caught, and he was warned that one more infraction would mean reform school. His parents enrolled Stano at Hargrave Military Academy in Chatham, Virginia. While there, he would steal from other cadets. But one thing was different while he was at Hargrave. He was the one getting bullied. He regularly got made fun of about his weight and appearance, and that scarred him. He was pulled out of that school and then stayed with his grandparents for a time in Ormond Beach, a city located north of Daytona. By the time his parents picked him up to take him back, they had to install locks on their bedroom door. Stano's own parents began to fear their son. His parents eventually moved to Ambler, Pennsylvania. It was the fourth place he'd lived after upstate New York, Virginia, and Florida. As expected, Stano struggled there, too. Stano kept stealing, 
and he could not hold down a job. Eventually, he started abusing alcohol and other drugs. He impregnated a young mentally disabled girl. Stano's parents paid for her abortion. At 23 years old, he returned to Florida. His parents settled in a house in Ormond-by-the-Sea, an unincorporated community along the shore between Flagler Beach and Daytona Beach. Stano met a girl and got engaged. Her name was Teresa Esposito. Just before the wedding, Stano was arrested for check fraud. His fiancée and parents wrote to the judge, begging him to allow Stano to get out of jail so that he could get married. The judge was moved by the letters, and he gave Stano his release. The marriage was not a good one. Here again is Paul Crow. He often said he'd come home with blood on his pants or shirt. His wife would get upset. Uh, her father, she had two brothers, and he was scared to death of her two brothers. But the father had a horse. Gerald fed the horse fertilizer and killed him because he was mad at the father. Some of the things he would do, just unbelievable. The couple did not stay married for long. Stano admitted to Kathy Kelly that he fought with his wife's brother and took out his frustrations on her and her dog. One time, he got violent with her in front of her aunt and uncle. That was such a bad experience for Teresa that she decided to begin the divorce proceedings. They were married for a total of 13 months. After the divorce, Stano started drinking more. He also got a job with the News Journal. He worked in the mailroom as a newspaper inserter. The job, like most of the others he had, was only temporary. He left after about five months. Coming up, you'll hear more from Crow and Kelly, and I'll discuss in detail some of the slayings Gerald Stano committed across the Daytona region. After Donna Marie Hensley came forward, several more local prostitutes were interviewed by police. Many of them knew Stano. They told horror stories about him. He used knives, guns, even a bottle opener to threaten them. What he had done to Hensley, he had done to other prostitutes. And one in particular, Sandra Washington, talked to police about what he did to her. He had sex with her one night and then got angry and wanted his money back. The two of them had sex in his car. He attacked Washington, and then she got out of the car and ran away. While she was running, she heard a pop. She turned and saw Stano aiming a gun at her. The tips from Washington and Hensley and other prostitutes led one Daytona Beach police detective to an apartment complex. Stano had lived there, but by the time the detective got there, he had moved out. But the manager told the detective where Stano had moved to. A warrant was written up for Stano. He was charged with aggravated assault against Hensley. It was April Fool's Day, 1980. Police tracked down Stano to the restaurant where he was working. In the kitchen of that restaurant is where Stano was arrested. Man, I don't know what you're talking about, he told the arresting officers. Co-workers stared as he was handcuffed and escorted out. Soon after his arrest was when Stano first met Crow. Stano found himself opening up to the detective. 
During his future correspondence with Kathy Kelly, Stano admitted to her that he saw Crow more as a friend than a cop. It seemed Crow actually cared about him. The Mary Carol Maher murder was a case Crow had been working on. It had taken up a lot of his time. It was something he could not forget about. Maher's body was found 21 days after she had vanished in late January 1990. It was Stano who led detectives to the body. Maher had a scholarship offer from Clemson for swimming. She could have left for Clemson sooner, but decided to begin her collegiate life at the local community college. She wanted to be near the beach and with family for a bit longer before moving out of state. On January 27th, her mother had dropped her off at the Holiday Inn Boardwalk on North Atlantic Avenue, Daytona's entertainment area. Maher's plan was to get a ride home from a friend or call her mother to pick her up. Maher was an athlete, and she stood out in a crowd. Stano picked her out right away. He approached her, struck up a conversation, and managed to convince her to leave with him. He had a knack for doing that. Stano, who was portly and wore black-rimmed glasses, may not have been as handsome as Ted Bundy, but like Bundy, he knew how to disarm women. He knew how to get them to put their guard down. Here again is Kathy Kelly. I think he fancied himself quite quite the stud, wore these open neck shirts and just kind of came on to women in a kind of a gentle way. And of course, if they complained about the kind of music he had on on the radio or, or disagreed with him about anything, I think he later said this red rage would come over him and he would just lash out at them. As she left the bar, witnesses saw Maher enter an elevator with someone. That's all Crow had until he sat down with Stano. No one had any idea what had happened to her. At that point, her body still had not been found. Composite sketches of the stranger in the elevator were drawn up, but they weren't enough to move the case forward. But on this day, in April 1980, Crow, who had been reviewing the Hensley case, had the strong impression that he was about to come face-to-face with Maher's killer. As I had mentioned before, Crow had just finished studying interview techniques at the FBI Academy, so he was ready to try them out. Stano told Crow the first day he was interviewed that it was his birthday. That wasn't technically true. It was the anniversary of his adoption, which he always considered his birthday. It was then that Crow told him that he had an adopted son. From there, the two had a rapport. After identifying Maher in a photo, Stano admitted to Crow that he had picked her up before. At first, Stano said he drove her over the bridge to a convenience store on Mason and bought a six-pack of beer. Then he dropped her off. But Crow didn't buy that. Stano later admitted that Maher had started bitching at him, and that's when he struck her. Stano's face got flushed during the interview. He started to get angry recalling how Maher made him feel the night he hit her. He had asked her whether she wanted to have sex. Mistaking her for a prostitute must have angered Maher, which in turn angered Stano. He admitted to grabbing a knife from under his seat and stabbing her. 
He stabbed her in the chest and then in the back. She mumbled and then gurgled. He also admitted to striking her on the thigh with the knife. Maher, in fact, did suffer a serious injury to her thigh, which was something only Crow, the medical examiner, and the killer knew. Stano said Maher bled all over his floorboard, so he drove her to an area behind the airport. He dumped her body and then drove home to clean his car. After the interview, Stano agreed to take Crow to where he had dumped Maher's body. It was an emotional day for everyone, including Stano. After about two hours, he confessed to it. And then he, myself, and three other detectives put him in a car, and he led us to where the body was found. That's the only time when we walked up on the crime scene where she'd been found, he broke down and cried. He made the statement, this is the day you got me. Crow suspected that Stano teared up that day because he knew it was over. Killing was like a career to him, and it sustained him. All of that had come to an end, and Stano knew it. Another one of Stano's victims was 19-year-old Cheryl Ramona Neal, who had come to Daytona to celebrate her high school reunion and visit her boyfriend, William Meadows. It was Saturday, May 29th, 1976. Meadows was staying at the Holiday Inn Boardwalk, the very place where Stano often met his victims. Ramona showed up at her boyfriend's hotel room and saw four women inside in party mode. Furious, she got into the elevator and left. As it turned out, Meadows was not cheating on Ramona. The girls in his hotel room had just showed up there for a party, like young women often did in Daytona in 1976. Ramona was staying at the Mayan Inn with two friends. When she didn't return to the room that night, they contacted police. Two days later, on May 31st, Jack Neal, Ramona's father, showed up in Daytona. He didn't stay for long, but he wanted to be there in case some information was called in to police. He wanted to be there for his daughter. Ramona was one of nine kids, and she had a twin brother. The family was close. The break in the case came June 15th. Kenneth Gordon, a student, reported finding what looked like a body. Gordon was riding his motorcycle on Old Dixie Highway, north of Daytona, when he ran out of gas. He started pushing it down the road toward the nearest gas station. He got to National Gardens Road and Old Dixie in Ormond Beach and noticed something in a ditch. He kept pushing his motorcycle to a Texaco station on US-1 near I-95 and called the sheriff's office. Police found the body. It looked as though it was covered up with grass, weeds, or whatever else could be found in the immediate area. The following day, the body was matched to Ramona via dental records. On March 12, 1981, Crow interviewed Stano about Ramona. Stano admitted he had picked up a young lady matching Ramona's description. He said the girl he picked up was wearing a blue two-piece bathing suit. She was picked up in front of the hotel, where there was a picnic grove with a canopy. He asked whether she wanted to smoke some weed, and she agreed. Stano and the girl were drinking and smoking in his car. 
They drove to Granada Boulevard and then Beach Street, which runs along the Intracoastal Waterway. They went to a state park in Ormond Beach. Stano picked that location because it was secluded. He asked whether she wanted to have sex. She did not like that question, and he did not like her response to the question. So he strangled her. That's what he told Crow. Stano also said he cut her once or twice with a knife. He took her out of the car and put her into some weeds. He tried to cover the body. He wanted to conceal it in case somebody walked by later. Crow once said of Stano, quote, Meeting one of Satan's children is a feeling I can't put into words. He was amazed at the casualness in the way Stano described killing his victims. There was something else that stood out. Stano always covered the bodies. Branches, twigs, weeds, whatever he could find within reach, he would use to conceal his victims. Stano checked off every box of a serial killer. He was abused by his adopted father. He was abandoned by his biological mother. He was cruel to animals. He was destructive, setting fires and throwing objects off overpasses. He was a thief and a liar. He also had a deep-seated hatred toward women. As with many serial killers, Stano was about power and not so much sex. In fact, he was unable to perform on some of his victims. Part of that also may have been his abuse of alcohol and other drugs. Here again is Kathy Kelly. When I asked him how he would select his victims, he was very candid. He said, I would find a girl walking. And to him, that meant someone very vulnerable. They weren't always walking. In the case of the young lady not far from the news journal, her car had broken down. But she had the same kind of car he had, a Plymouth Duster. So it was easy for her to be trusting when he said he thought he knew what was wrong with the car. The girl who had car trouble was Barbara Bauer. She lived in New Smyrna Beach. She was 17 years old when she was killed. Barbara was a cheerleader, popular in school, and an honor roll student. One day in 1973, she drove to Daytona to pick out some fabric for her cheerleading uniform. She went to the Holly Hill Plaza at Nova Road and Mason Avenue, where the fabric store was located. She had driven her Plymouth Duster there. At that time, Stano drove the same car. Barbara was wearing an Ohio State shirt and blue jean shorts. She never returned home to New Smyrna Beach that day. For months, search parties went looking for her. Her mother had filed a missing persons report through the Volusia County Sheriff's Office. New Smyrna Beach is just a short distance south of Daytona. The first break in the case came seven months later in Stark, a town northwest of Gainesville and about a two-hour drive from Daytona. On April 10, 1974, a jailer and dispatcher on duty at the Bradford County Jail got a call from a 59-year-old woman who lived just east of South Road 100. The woman said her husband had just found what appeared to have been a human skull near their home. Investigators noticed there were more skeletal remains nearby. The bones were covered up by a dead branch and some pine needles. The couple told police they heard someone yelling months earlier from that vicinity 
The words were, quote, don't hit me no more and don't do it anymore. The husband was going to investigate, armed with a rifle, but his wife talked him out of it. An agent with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement saw a photo of a missing girl on the bulletin board of the Bradford County Sheriff's Office. It was a picture of Barbara Bauer. He had a theory. He called New Smyrna Beach Police. Then he called the Bauer residence. Mrs. Bauer drove to Stark to see whether she could identify her daughter's belongings, which included earrings, a sandal, and other items worn by Barbara. She drove there on April 13, 1974. At first, she said the jewelry items could not have been her daughter's. Then she showed her a sandal. She said it looked similar, but it couldn't have been Barbara's. Then she was shown jean shorts. Maybe it was her daughter's, but she couldn't be sure. Then she was shown the Ohio State t-shirt. Barbara's mother left the room in tears. Five months later, Barbara's vehicle was found abandoned in Valdosta, Georgia. Six years later, Crow had a conversation with Stano about a girl driving the same car as him, a Plymouth Duster. A Bradford County deputy drove to Daytona to interview Stano on August 23, 1982. Stano described to him with a lot of detail what he did. He and a friend saw her in the plaza parking lot. Stano jump-started the car, and he offered to drive the car for her, with her in it, to make sure everything was okay. And then he would reimburse her for the gas. This was happening while Stano was on vacation. He didn't actually move to Florida until later that year in 1973. At this point, he was staying in Florida for a week by himself. When he had Barbara in the car, Stano drove for 30 minutes and pulled into a gas station. The girl was nervous and asked whether it was time to go back. That's when he struck her in the face. She curled up in the passenger seat, injured and frightened. Stano told investigators he strangled the girl with his hands. Barbara rode a long way with Stano, knowing she was going to die. There was another victim linked to Stano. Her name was Susan Basile. She was the youngest of the girls Stano was suspected of killing. She was 12. She also was the only victim Stano had known, and she was the only one he had pity for. Susan was killed in 1975. Stano did not confess to it for another seven years. Here is Crow describing that case to me. We had a case in uh, Port Orange. A 12-year-old girl was missing. They never found the body. And his prints were all over that type of case. When I talked to him about it, he denied it, denied it, denied it. And I could see it was really bothering him, uh, being a juvenile. So I put the yellow pad in front of him, gave him an ink pen. You write it out. You tell me what happened. He did. Wrote the whole thing out, where he picked her up, where he took her. They both were at the skating ring on Nova Road together. He was a guard at the skating rink. She broke her arm one time. He knew her. And she was comfortable getting in the car with him. Stano vividly remembered how he would literally clasp Susan's hand and the two would skate along the edge of the Starlight Skate Center together. 
On the day he decided to kill her, Stano lured the girl into his car with the promise they'd go skating. She noticed he was taking her away from the rink, not toward it. She demanded that he let her out of the car. He drove her to a wooded area, strangled her, and then left her in the woods, covering up her body with some tree branches. She was abducted from Port Orange. That case had vexed the police there. She had vanished near her home on June 10th, 1975. She disappeared in the middle of the afternoon. She had gotten off the school bus and was walking down a tree-shaded road to her house. As Crow mentioned, Stano wrote down his confession. But a few years later, he recanted it. He denied killing Susan. Susan's family never seemed convinced that Stano was the killer. The brother and father thought maybe he did. The mother did not. And she even resented Crow for linking Stano to her. The family, as expected, was torn apart by Susan's murder. Stano was not prosecuted for that killing. Stano had killed another woman named Susan. Susan Bickrist. He was prosecuted for that one. Susan Bickrist moved to Florida from Ohio in 1975. She was a cosmetologist, but the only job she could find in Daytona was as a server. She was only there for five weeks. Her body was found floating in Spruce Creek in Port Orange, south of Daytona. A pair of fishermen found the body floating under the East Bridge. Susan had wounds on her face and neck. It was obvious that she had been choked. She was in the water for up to eight hours before she was found, according to the medical examiner. Nearly seven years after the slaying, Paul Crow called an investigator at the Volusia County Sheriff's Office. Stano had confessed to Crow that he had murdered Susan. In this instance, Stano followed Susan from work. It was easy for him to track her. She was driving a white Camaro with a black top. He followed her all the way to her apartment. At first, he told police that he had struck up a conversation with her and convinced her to get in the car with him. But later, at trial, he said he had to force her into his car. He drove her around and then struck her in the face. He would always point out that he had a ring on and that his victims were always struck by his ring hand. During his admission, he said that Susan tried to escape while she was in his car, but he kept her trapped inside. The locks were pressed down and anyone with sweaty hands would not have been able to pinch or grab the lock and pull it upward. While she was in the car, Stano tried strangling her. He choked her to the point that she was on the brink of death. Eventually, he got her out of the car and carried her into the water. He dumped her body, and she technically died from drowning. In March 1983, Stano entered a guilty plea to the first-degree murder of Susan Bickrist. Prosecutors pursued a death sentence for that one. On June 13, 1983... Stano was sentenced to death. The medical examiner specifically wrote in the autopsy report that her death was, quote, prolonged. 
It is difficult to describe the heartache that the victims' families felt after they learned Stano had killed their loved ones. Keep in mind, many of these families waited years before anyone was arrested. Susan Bickrist's mother, who lived in Ohio, called police in Florida regularly for four years before Stano was charged. And when she found out about the death of her daughter, she was first told that she had drowned. Sometime later, after the autopsy report was completed, it was ruled that she had been strangled, or at least choked to the point of near death, before being dumped into the water. Ramona Neal's twin brother, Ray, attended Stano's execution. Ramona was the one from Georgia who was in Daytona celebrating with her classmates after graduating from high school. She was picked up by Stano after she wrongly accused her boyfriend of cheating on her. Ray told Kathy Kelly that his family was never the same after Ramona's death. Twins have a unique bond. When she died, Ray permanently lost a piece of himself. Here again is Paul Crow discussing the first two murders Stano is thought to have committed. The bodies of two girls were found in Gainesville when Stano was 21 years old. As Crow mentioned at the top of the podcast, Stano was living in Pennsylvania at the time. The case went cold for more than a decade because there were no local suspects. Here is Crow describing Stano's confession to killing the two girls. And I call up there. After several calls, we found a, she was in the county. They were in the county. They'd been found out in the woods behind a church. Asking about that, he put the two girls in the front seat. They were hitchhiking and got to that location. He always uh, added he was going to smoke a little marijuana with them. And they'd be more agreeable to do it. That's when he pulled his knife out and stuck the girl in the middle in the chest. The girl on the right, closest to the door, got out and ran. He caught up with her. He caught up with her because he said she had boots on. She couldn't run that fast, and she did. There is something else worth pointing out with regards to Stano, which Kathy Kelly did point out in her book. Among the long list of victims were several women referred to as Jane Doe's. Many of the women Stano left in his wake were those who weren't claimed, weren't missed, weren't identified. That wasn't surprising considering Stano regularly picked up hitchhikers, prostitutes, and young women who were aimless or rebellious. One of those females wore a t-shirt that read, Do It in the Dirt, which was disturbingly prophetic. Her remains were found near Interstate 95. Stano confessed to killing that particular Jane Doe. He told Crow he saw her walk out of a bar. She approached his car and he offered her money for sex. She agreed and she hopped in. He strangled her and dumped her body. The woman's remains, which were found one or two years after she was killed, were too badly decomposed for fingerprints. Dental records could only be compared to a particular female, so if no one came forward to report her missing, there was nothing to compare. To this day, she's never been identified. She was discovered 38 years ago. There are many more examples of women being murdered in similar fashion who still have not been identified. There were also a number of close calls, 
Stano could have been arrested earlier and pinned to other killings, or at least other attacks against women. In one case, Stano fought with a woman and stole her purse after she had refused to give back the money he had paid her for sex. She got away and called police, but they didn't believe her story. She came off mentally unstable. Here is Paul Crow describing another case. All these cases, the victims were never in the car more than 30 to 45 minutes before he killed them. Just didn't happen. He didn't drive 30 miles with a live victim. And that's something that early in the thing he noticed with him. Uh, how did these people stay in the car and not put up a fight? Well, in Daytona Beach on North Halifax, there's a church just north of Seabreeze Boulevard. That was one of his favorite spots. He would drive behind the place. And what's so frustrating is he had a victim he took there. He couldn't locate his knife. It slid somewhere. And he had her clothes off. And she jumped out of the car and ran. He couldn't catch her. He got in the car and left. She ran across the street behind the house, knocked on the door. People came. Police came. She described him, car, etc. Thirty minutes later, he was located at Maine and Grandview. The uh, victim was brought to the car. She identified him. Her clothes were in the back seat of the car, but she didn't want to prosecute hmm. After Donna Marie Hensley got away, in spite of being attacked with acid and a blade, she was able to give police what they needed. Stana was finally caught. And even after he confessed to killing six women and received a relatively light sentence for those killings, Crow got more confessions out of Stano, which led to a death sentence. When Judge S. James Foxman sentenced Stano to death, he said, quote, I see no motive in these killings. Normally, with murders, we see passion, greed, the need to eliminate a witness. I don't see that here. These murders are completely senseless. Crow's interviews with Stano were spread across a six-year period, beginning in 1980. Stano also wrote 40 letters to Kathy Kelly from August 15, 1985 to June 10, 1986. She also visited him at Florida State Prison. She published those letters he wrote to her in her book. Stano carried a torch for Kathy Kelly. As one would expect, that was an unpleasant thought for Kathy. Yes, Paul, if I was married and thought I was attractive. And I think any woman who went to see a man in prison, that, you know, was easy for him to become the focus. Because pretty soon he wanted me not to be a press visitor. He wanted me to be on his personal visiting list. I asked Crow how Stano was able to keep killing so many females across such an enormous landscape. The one obvious reason is that law enforcement did not have DNA capabilities back then. Advances in forensic technology, as well as a culture of law enforcement agencies eagerly sharing information with one another, wouldn't happen until years later. So such a phenomenon is way less likely today. But it was still remarkable how Stano knew how to keep doing what he was doing and avoid detection. He was willing to travel as far as necessary to do so. Mobility. Uh, as soon as he got his license to drive, we started going all the way back to Pennsylvania, and you can see the homicides unsolved. What well, was so frustrating, once you get a 
8 to 12 of those homicides, look at them. Very glaring to me was the fact that there has been an injustice done. No justice had been done in this case. It's very unusual now, but in those days, 1980s, jurisdictions didn't share a lot of information with each other, and it came back to harm. Stano was executed March 23, 1998. The guy who once gave a litany of admissions to an investigator he thought was his friend started to change his story the closer he got to his execution date. In a letter that was released by his attorney, Stano wrote, in part, quote, I was frightened, I was threatened, and I was held month after month without any real legal representation. I was not strong enough. I confessed to crimes that I did not commit. He went on to write, quote, My heart goes out to the families who believe that I am responsible for the death of their loved one. Then he ended his letter with the following line. Paul Crow created the story, but all other police officers know I am innocent. Crow should be held accountable. The story that Stano was more of a serial confessor rather than a serial killer started to gain some traction, but mostly among anti-death penalty advocates. Crow believes Stano was the culprit because he was the one who brought him to Maher's body. He was the one who gave him information that only the killer would know. That included descriptions of the clothing they wore, specific types of wounds, and where they were on the body, and how they died. When we sent him to the prison, you leave him a three, four months there. He's very willing to come back, get good food, good place to sleep, etc., and he'd start letting one out at a time. He was very cagey about that, thinking, well, I got four or five life sentences here. When is the big one going to come? We kind of dragged our feet with that just to get more and more information. Anybody that does these things, they need to write on the top of their yellow pad. It's not what you know. It's what you can prove. Number two, don't ever ask a question unless you know the answer to it. Those are two things I live by as a homicide investigator. Turn out to be a, a very good tool. Kathy Kelly dismissed the theory that Stano sought notoriety through confessing to crimes he didn't commit. There is that community of people who feel like he just wanted to get attention. And he did get attention after his arrest, not from mainstream media. He wasn't on the cover of People magazine, but he did get attention. Pictures of him being led back and forth to jail. But it didn't seem to me that he was after attention. It remains a mystery to those of us who have read books about serial killers that Stano, who reportedly killed as many as 88 females, never got the notoriety of a Ted Bundy or a Gary Ridgway or a Robert Hansen. Kathy talked to me about that, too. Stano seems overlooked uh, in the pantheon of serial killers. He does. He does. Why do you think that is? I, I don't know if he didn't have the charisma of a Ted Bundy. And, of course, none of these cases were initially linked to a serial killer. Some of those other cases, the Golden State Killer, you know, they've gotten that little catchphrase from the get-go. But his didn't. Over a period of years, they started to piece together that these cases were all related. So he just... He didn't have the background. I think Bundy had volunteered at the suicide hotline and, you know, was portrayed to be a little bit of an empathetic character before he turned out to be the monster he was. 
Stano may not have elicited as much notoriety as other killers, but many still remember him, particularly those who grew up in Daytona Beach during the 70s and 80s. There's still a huge amount of interest. Someone mentioned Stano's name on Facebook a couple months ago, and I was amazed at the number of people who chimed in. He used to live in my apartment complex. I used to see him at the chicken place on Mason Avenue where he worked. Amazing. A number of people have somewhat of a tenuous connection with him. This is a case that still looms large in Crow's head. He investigated numerous killers and rapists during his career, and he was the Daytona police chief when Costa Fotopoulos and Deidre Hunt tied up a man in the woods and gunned him down while videotaping it. It was a story that generated national news. But nothing affected him like the case of Gerald Stano, and nothing else has stuck to him quite like that case. It's like he was the Elliot Ness to Stano's Al Capone. When authorities in Washington state were investigating the Green River Killer, they called on Crow for advice. So the Stano investigation largely defines Crow's public life. This is part of your legacy, Paul Crow. Uh, <laughs> you probably um, have mixed feelings about that, right? You Tremendous. You, you go from one end of the scale to the other. When he would get eligible for death row, <clears throat> and gave him a time certain. I would get 20, 30 phone calls at home, screaming in my ear, yelling in my ear what an animal I was, how bad I was, you know, this type of investigation. Just gnaws at you, at your gut a little bit. Like I said, when you get different uh, organizations that are anti-something, they can be very vicious. Previously on this podcast, I had profiled a number of local cold cases, and one particular listener sent me a letter while I was working on this episode, describing to me an encounter she and a friend had with a strange man while hitchhiking one day in 1973. The woman, who sent me the letter about two weeks ago, did not disclose her name or include an address on the envelope. She said she and her friend hitchhiked from Daytona to Orlando and then encountered Stano at a convenience mart. She is now convinced it was, in fact, Stano. The man she and her friend encountered had the same M.O. While the two were at the gas station, a stranger approached them and offered to take them both back to Daytona. During the drive east, Stano pulled off the highway and onto a dirt road. He found a place overgrown with scrub. The woman's letter stated in part, quote, I remembered reading that rapists aren't really after the sex, but they fed on fear. I was able to appear calm, almost nonchalant, and kept my roommate calm. We acted like it was no big deal. And this frustrated him so much that he was unable to perform with either of us. She continues, Finally, he took us back to the highway and made us get out. He had told us he had done this before and got away with it. He told us to turn our backs as he drove away so that we could not see the car tag. And if he looked in the rearview mirror and saw us looking, he would back up and kill us. We didn't look. The woman, who is now a senior citizen, said she and her friend decided not to tell anyone about their ordeal. 
She has never even told her husband about it. It just goes to show you that the total number of Stano victims will probably never be known. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about this case, I would recommend you purchase Kathy Kelly's book, I Would Find a Girl Walking, which is available on Amazon.com. Tune in next week when I'll discuss a Thanksgiving Day massacre that resulted in the deaths of four people who were killed by a family member inside a West Palm Beach home nine years ago. A five-week manhunt resulted in the arrest of the gunman, who was hiding out in a hotel in the Florida Keys. My special guest for that segment will be Palm Beach Post reporter Andrew Mara. Also next week, I'll update you on a few of the cases I have profiled previously on this podcast. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.